I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. And I've got a group of people and, you know, you're making noise. You're doing the same bear safety protocols that the Alaska Department of Fish and Game gives you on their handout. We're following the rules. So we're going through these alders and I was just kind of joking around and I go, here, kitty, 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 just, you know, making noise. It doesn't matter what you say. You're just making noise. Meet Drew Hamilton. Drew's a bear viewing guide based out of Homer, Alaska. And I don't know if it was related to that or it was just dumb chance, but in the alders, two large male bears get in a fight with each other and we can't see them. And so I'm like, oh, oh shoot, that sucks. And right as that's happening, this other male bear crests the hill in front of us. Like he's coming on the trail towards us. And so I'm kind of looking in the alders and then I look forward at the bear that's coming and I recognize him. He's a very mellow bear. He's older, he's big. And so I look at him and we make eye contact. And then we both look into the alders to see what's going on over there. And he goes and he beelines it straight for these other two bears that you can tell where they are because all the alders are moving and stuff. And he just whips both of their asses. He's <laughs> and then for as exciting as an instant as that was, just as fast, it just went whew. The situation was resolved and we continued on our bear viewing day. But, you know, 18 years of doing this, I am struggling to come up with situations that that I would have felt scared. Okay, to be clear, these are not trained circus bears. They are not some sort of new, friendlier species of cuddly ursine. They are 800-pound, six-and-a-half-foot-tall coastal brown bears of southern Alaska with claws the length of a human finger, the Ursus arctos horribles. Most people just call them grizzlies. These are the same bears we learn to fear from our childhood storybooks. They're the bears we've been taught to worry about when we're in wild places that make us carry bear spray, bells, canisters, fences, even guns to protect ourselves from. And for the past 18 years, Drew has taken a small group of regular people, tourists, and borrowed waders out into the remote Alaskan wilderness to hang out with these brown bears. No fences, no platforms, no guns, just Drew. Trailed by a small group of guests, cameras in hand, surrounded by immaculate tundra, salmon streams, moose, and caribou tracks. And bears. Lots of bears. These days, he does it in large part as a unique way to protect this magnificent landscape from the proposed pebble mine. 
Today, for the fifth installment of our Endangered Spaces series, our producer Jen Altschul takes us to the mainland of southern Alaska to meet Drew and the bears, these incredible creatures, to better understand the threats to this landscape, both new and old, and to talk with a group of extraordinary people doing everything in their power to protect it. I'm Fitzko Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. So it looks like there are about six bears you can pick out fairly easily, ranging there, from right? 70 yards out to 300 yards out there. So we've got bears that are eating two, three, berries out on the tundra. We've got some that are fishing. And they're all just coming and going. There are no trees out here, so you can just the see them for miles. The one was here, but we're about to go up over this hill here, and I've... There's one that just popped into the river down there and another one heading that way. So we'll go get in place and see what they're doing. And that bear might even be making its way over here. That would be cool to get a good look at him or her. It's hard to tell from that distance. It's late August. High clouds and crisp air announce the arrival of fall in Alaska. Two hours ago, Drew, a pilot, Five other guests and I scrunched into a tiny float plane in Homer and flew west out over Cook Inlet. We flew past Mount Augustine, a textbook volcano that rises 4,100 feet straight out of the saltwater into a perfect cone. The last major eruption in 1986 coated the entire town of Homer in ash. We flew over the striking cliffs that fall straight down to the ocean from Katmai National Park then over a stream so choked with salmon that whole swathes of the water glinted red from the air. After just over an hour, we landed on a small lake in the Katmai National Preserve. We crawled out of the plane, scrambled up from the lake, stood on top of a muddy bank, and looked down on two of the biggest bears I have ever seen, sitting a hundred feet away in a creek, gnawing on salmon, completely indifferent to our presence. We made our way along the bank and clomped down to water level where more bears fished and even more dotted the surrounding hillsides. It's a landscape that plays tricks on your sense of scale. Treeless tundra rolls out in every direction before it sweeps up gently into hills that anywhere else people would name as individual mountains. With nothing for reference, a 600-pound bear might be the size of a big lab. These animals clearly belong in this landscape. Drew also clearly belongs in this landscape. Like a pool shark, he can take in all the bears in view, their individual trajectories, look ahead to any obstacles or other bears they might bounce off of, and predict which way they'll go next. All day, I ask questions about bears like, what does it mean when a bear stands up? When one looks at you like that? When a bear turns its back to you? Like I wanted a flow chart of bear behavior. If bear does X, that means Y, you do Z. Drew had the same answer every time. Depends on the bear. (laughs) Within a few minutes on the ground, it became real clear that the hardest part of Drew's job is to manage people, not bears. Inevitably, one person in our group walked faster than the rest and worried beyond all else about the best camera angle and lighting. One person clearly did not usually walk on uneven surfaces, one lag behind for photos or a sip of water. 
Drew managed them all with flawless patience. If things are going to go wrong, it's because somebody falls in a hole. It's going to be because somebody fell off the float of the float plane and somebody whacks their head on the tail or whatever. Those are the things that get people. It's not the bears. That doesn't mean he isn't paying attention to the bears. I think it's just become second nature for him. Think about it like a mountain guide, making countless choices to select a route through hazardous terrain. Choices they could explain if asked, but don't have to consciously think through anymore. Drew looks a lot like a friendly brown bear. He has a bushy reddish-brown beard, a warm smile, and eye sparkle. He's built like he was raised on a fishing boat, or in a logging camp, or alongside a couple bear cubs. In truth, Drew grew up in Iowa. His childhood bedroom did have an unusual amount of bear art on the wall, but Drew himself didn't grow up with any real unusual attachment to bears. At 18, he took off to Washington, D.C., and started in on a degree in international relations at American University. It took a couple years, but I figured out that Washington, D.C. was not really the place I needed to be. It was not me. It turns out Alaska is about as far from Washington, D.C. as you can possibly get. So piled in a Jeep Wrangler with a buddy and drove up, and uh, we ran out of gas. Somewhere on the Kenai Peninsula and stopped in a fishing lodge to get jobs. It just so happened that they ran out of gas in front of a fishing lodge in Sterling, Alaska. Then we're like, oh, well, they're hiring. Here we are. And it turns out that this fishing lodge had a bear viewing camp. This particular bear viewing camp was on an old homestead that's now an inholding in Lake Clark National Park. There's this big meadow behind where all the bears hang out and graze in the spring. And I don't know, there were probably a couple dozen bears out cruising around this meadow. And I look down and to the left and... There's this blue tarp spread out in the grass, and the old homesteader that lived there had his outboard motor all taken apart and was taking a nap. I can picture it sitting here right now. It was eye-opening in that I was thinking, well, if he's been out here for 40 years and he's as unconcerned about the two dozen brown bears that are wandering about wherever they like. Maybe these aren't the bloodthirsty creatures that have been out to get us as we read in books and magazines and see on TV. And you know, my buddy ended up going home after a couple months and I just stayed. It just fit, it felt right. For the next eight years, Drew spent his summers as a bear guide out of that same lodge. He moved on only when the Alaska Department of Fish and Game offered him a position at the McNeil River State Game Sanctuary and Refuge. Drew worked at McNeil for six years, then shifted to work as a full-time wildlife guide. Now, he travels the world to guide people to view and photograph polar bears, wolves, and monarch butterflies. Summers, he goes back to Homer and the brown bears. When I started doing it, I just wanted to be out with the bears. And I think for a lot of the people who do this professionally, the bears are fantastic and the bears are what got you into it. But just being out in those wild places is what keeps you coming back for more. And then to realize that for those spots to exist, you have to fight for them. I do see it now as a way to affect positive change in people. To educate people about these bears, this landscape, and the threats they face, both on a local, immediate scale 
and on a global scale, as in climate change. And right now, the most immediate threat is the pebble mine. So two questions. Is this the same pebble mine, the one that people have been up in arms for over a decade now? Because I could have sworn I'd read something about an EPA decision a few years ago that was supposed to be the proverbial nail in the coffin for this project. Question two, if it is the same pebble mine that I've heard about before, why are we talking about bears in Homer, Alaska? Because every, everything before I thought had to do with Bristol Bay. Short answer, Yes, this is the same pebble mine. And yes, in 2014, the EPA took action to deny the pebble partnership the right to apply for a mining permit. They cited Section 404C of the Clean Water Act. And for a moment, everyone thought that meant that pebble was dead, even when pebble sued. But that was under the Obama administration. Right. So what's happened now? The pebble lawsuit kept the EPA's proposal tied up in court for the next three years. Then Scott Pruitt was appointed head of the EPA, and after a meeting with Pebble's CEO, he reversed the EPA's decision and settled the lawsuit in Pebble's favor. Not only is Pebble returned from the dead, this time they've made it further into the permit application process than they ever had before. And the plan they submitted not only poses threats to Bristol Bay, it also includes new components that threaten Cook Inlet, the major body of water outside of Homer and to the local brown bears, among other things. (sighs) Yeah. Okay. Um, I live in Seattle. You know, I I I think a lot of people don't know this about Seattle, but there's actually this really strong ties to Alaska fishing here. A lot of the people that do fishing live here as well and go up there for the summers. So I've seen anti-pebble stickers on bumpers of what seems like one in every 10 Subarus for the past 10 years. And I've certainly been aware and followed along with this issue for a while. But for anyone who's further, a little bit further removed and doesn't know what Pebble Mine, could you give a brief version of what it is and the backstory? A brief version. Okay. I think it might help to start with some geography. So picture a map of Alaska. If you go north from the top of the Alaska Peninsula, that's the pointy part that sticks out the bottom there. If you go north from there and the tundra almost directly west of Homer, across Cook Inlet, there's a massive lake, the biggest in Alaska, called Lake Iliamna. The pebble deposit is just north of that lake. It's buried under this vast expanse of tundra and wetlands. Those wetlands and the mine site, they sit in the headwaters of two out of the eight major rivers that feed into Bristol Bay, a mecca for salmon and salmon fishing, not just in Alaska, but in the world. About half of the world's harvest of wild salmon, they come from Bristol Bay. It's the largest run of sockeye in the world and one of the largest runs of king salmon. Katie Bursch and her husband have fished Bristol for the past 31 years. Here's Katie. I have nightmares about good days fishing because those wild runs are so powerful and so overwhelming. Like when you're walking out to your skiff, the water is up to your thigh and fish are hitting your legs and they're just thick and your net becomes a rope of fish. On a big day, you have fish scales 
in your hair, on your face. You get fish scales on your eyeballs sometimes. I have like these art pieces in my head where I'm being run over, like trampled by a school of salmon. Like I just feel like they would just push me down under the water and put me in the mud and <laughs> swim over me. There's so many. The Canadian mining company Northern Dynasty first purchased the rights to Pebble and started sniffing around in 2001. In 2007, Northern Dynasty and the multinational mining company Anglo-American formed the Pebble Partnership and started making more noise about a massive open pit mine that would expose the large deposit of primarily copper and gold. In 2013, Anglo-American abandoned the project, but the organization heading up the mine is still called the Pebble Partnership. Almost immediately, a massive opposition sprung up in response. The mining company insisted that Pebble would not impact the fish. Opponents were up in arms because they felt like inevitably the toxic tailings, the non-valuable stuff that a mine excavates would leach into the water table and ultimately poison Bristol Bay. So I, I don't, I don't want to minimize the importance of this place or any wild place for that matter, but I do have to say that it sounds it sounds very familiar. Like the mining company says, this mine will be environmentally safe. Mining in Alaska actually has an excellent track record. The opposition doesn't buy it. That toxic water will flow into the Bristol Bay watershed and poison the fish. Proponents cite examples of existing mines with good environmental track records. We've got six large mines here in Alaska, and five of them are metal mines, and they all are success stories. They do not have any negative marks on their record, if you will. Opponents name mines that have turned into environmental disasters. As we saw at the Mount Polly mine down in British Columbia, when an earthen dam holding back mine waste blew out, the impact downstream is dramatic. Proponents say the mine will create high-paying jobs that will bolster the local economy. Red Dog completely transformed that region. 55% of all of Tech's workforce, over 300 people, are from that region originally. Their average wage is $108,000. Opponents then argue that those handful of temporary jobs will go to outsiders. They will hire 2,000 people for construction. Transient construction workers causing all kinds of hell and chaos. Then they go away. They're not all going to be Alaska residents, I'll tell you that. And will threaten a much larger number of sustainable jobs. There's roughly 12,000 jobs that are created because of the fish. Those 12,000 jobs can go on forever if we continue to manage the resource correctly. To create 1,000 jobs for a mine that would last 100 years and then potentially permanently hurt a huge, incredible resource just doesn't make economic sense to me, not in the long term. I could go on, but you get the point. Again, I don't, I don't mean to say that any of these arguments are invalid just because we've heard them before, but this pebble fight has been going on for what seems like an abnormally long time, and it's attracted a huge amount of far-reaching attention. So my question is, why? why what is so special about this mine that it, it warrants this much attention? Well, first off, the stakes are really high. It's hard to overemphasize the importance 
of the salmon fishery. It's really the only remaining wild, sustainable salmon fishery on that scale, period. People have caught salmon in Bristol Bay for thousands of years now, and those fish keep coming back. In 2017, 59 million salmon returned to Bristol Bay to spawn. This is Dave Applin from the World Wildlife Fund. Where else in North America, where else on Earth is there an intact ecosystem of that size that's as productive as Bristol Bay is, where every year millions of red salmon return to their natal streams, where those fish not only feed bears and beluga whales and eagles, but the surplus of that system supports over 14,000 jobs every summer without impacting the golden goose. The second major thing that makes this pebble proposal unique is that the proponents and opponents of the mine don't divide down the standard predictable lines. Typically in these land use battles, you wind up with resource extraction on one side, conservation on the other. But commercial fishing falls solidly into the resource extraction category. So you have a lot of people who might typically support this type of development or at least keep their mouths shut about it, who are now vocal about protecting this watershed. In addition, you have these three groups of fishermen who often find themselves across the aisle from one another, banding together to fight this mine. Native fishermen, sport fishermen, and commercial fishermen have a contentious history in Alaska. But in this case, they've chosen to set down their pitchforks and join forces against this greater evil. That's right. So what you're saying is the stakes are super high. Uh, there's lots of opposition from folks who might not usually oppose this kind of thing. Finally, in 2014, it seems like this thing is dead. It seems like we can finally put Pebble Mine behind us. And then Trump gets elected and the zombie project returns. What does this have to do with bears? Because I like bears and I want to hear more about the bears. Well, once the Pebble Partnership got the go-ahead to proceed into permitting, their first step was to submit a permit application to the Army Corps of Engineers to initiate the environmental impact statement process. Originally, Pebble had planned to transport the ore concentrate from the mine site, primarily using this existing road that goes from Pile Bay on the east side of Lake Iliamna to Williamsport on Cook Inlet. But portions of the road cross native lands, and the native village of Pedro Bay essentially told Pebble they could go kick rocks. So Pebble quietly concocted a new plan to get the ore to the ocean. The application that Pebble submitted includes this phenomenally convoluted plan to transport the ore from the mine site to the ocean over state land. Are you ready? I think this is going to be good, isn't it? Um, yes, I guess I am ready. So, first, they would load the ore onto trucks and drive it 29 miles down a road they would have to build to a ferry terminal on the north shore of Lake Iliamna, which they would also have to build. Then, they would load the ore onto a ferry, an ice-breaking ferry, because Lake Iliamna freezes over in the winter. The ore would ride the ferry to a terminal on the south shore, which also does not yet exist, where they would load it back onto trucks. From there, they would have to punch 37 miles of paved road through the tundra to Kamashak Bay to this place called Amoktadori Beach, where they want to build this giant industrial complex and port. At the port, they would unload the ore from the trucks and load it onto barges. The barges would carry the ore out of the shallows of Amoktadori Bay, 
Mokdadori Bay is notoriously shallow and full of reefs, where finally they would unload it onto a cargo ship bound for a processing plant in Asia. The transportation corridor uh, defies logic. Are you kidding me? It's ridiculous. It's poorly planned, completely irresponsible, and I'm disgusted. Yeah, disgusted. It's insane. I don't even know where to begin. That does seem like a lot of loading and unloading. Uh, yes, five times. So what, but what makes that so insane? How about we start at the mine site and work our way down to the ocean? What about the bears? When do we get to talk about the bears? Yeah, we're, we're going to get to the bears. Stay with me. Okay, okay, sorry. First, the ore goes from the mine to Lake Iliamna and gets loaded onto that ferry. The, the icebreaker one, right? Yes. According to locals, bad idea number one. It's just massive. When you're flying over it, you think you're going over an ocean because you can't see the other side. The navigational conditions on Iliamna Lake can sometimes be worse than they are in Lower Cook Inlet. It's a very large body of water and you can get large waves and currents in there. And they say they're going to be taking ore across that lake? It's ridiculous. Supposing the ferry safely navigates the lake, then we get to the 37 miles of new asphalt through the tundra and wetlands and the bears. Yes, finally. The bears, Jen. Finally the bears. The area that this road would punch through is smack in the middle of a major migration route for brown bears. Bears migrate? Bears migrate. Not in herds like caribou or in flocks like birds, but they're big animals. They need a lot of food, so they move around to get to where the food is at any given time or to get to a proper denning site. Guides regularly see bears they recognize from McNeil River and the Katmai Preserve and the other way around. So why can't the bears just cross the road? Well, to understand why bear folks are so upset about this road, I think you have to understand how and why bear viewing works in this area. So near this potential road, you have three major areas where bears have relatively high levels of protection. Lake Clark National Park and Preserve to the north, McNeil River just barely to the south, like almost touching the road in places, and Katmai National Park and Preserve directly south of McNeil. McNeil River, in particular, is a hugely important place for brown bears and brown bear viewing. I've watched bears all around the world, and I'll tell you without even hesitating that it's the best place in the world to watch bears. And it's not just me that'll that'll tell you that. Anybody that's set foot in there has had a powerful, if not transformative, experience. It's the largest congregation of brown bears seasonally anywhere on Earth. The most bears I've seen at one time in a quarter-mile stretch of river is 78. McNeil is also where, back in the late 60s and early 70s, a small group of bear lovers really learned how to read the behavior of these bears and develop the techniques to view them safely from the ground. Basically, the principles of the modern bear viewing industry were all documented, were all put into practice there first. The reason it all works is that this chunk of Alaska has a habitat that can support a lot of bears, which means that the bears have to learn to tolerate being close to each other. To put it another way, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone, for example, can't just plant itself in the middle of a stream, reach down, and whack a salmon. It has to go chase down things like ground squirrels, which means it takes a lot more habitat to support one bear. So the bears don't have to learn to put up with a bunch of other bears in their space. Somewhere like McNeil, bears have had to learn to tolerate other bears. So 
it's not a huge step for them to learn how to tolerate humans in that environment as well. The third critically important step that allows people to safely watch these bears is that people have to learn how to behave in a predictable, non-threatening way. To do things like moving in small, tight groups rather than scattered all over the place. Making enough noise that they don't inadvertently startle a bear. Having an awareness of where a bear might want to go so you don't block their path from point A to B. Not leaving food scraps on the ground so the bears don't start to associate people with food. Having someone in the group who knows how to speak bear. To know what a bear is trying to tell you with its body language and to communicate back to it that A, you're not a threat, and B, you're not food. They're excellent communicators. They're telling you what is exactly on their mind. It's just a matter of are you in tune enough to their body language, to the situation around you, to interpret what they're saying. So I was at this bear viewing spot. I was all by myself. It was 4th of July. It was hot. And I was sitting on this bluff overlooking the spot where the bears and the fish would be down below me, but there were no bears and I was kind of sitting in the sun and I, I ended up falling asleep and it's all tundra around. So there's maybe some willows, but it's grass and tundra mostly. And I woke up to this snapping stick and a ways off, there's a male bear that had found the only dead branch around and stepped on it and was staring right at me. And I hadn't realized that where I was napping was kind of close to where the trail would go down. So he had to go by me to get down to where he wanted to fish. I mean, we say don't sneak up on a bear. Well, that bear's thinking, well, don't sneak up on a human. So I looked at him and we made eye contact. And then I just relaxed my posture. And just once I laid my head back down, basically telling him that I'm unconcerned with him, he just walked right by and went down and fished. They're reading your body, whether you know what you're saying or not, because they only speak bear. They communicate to each other through body postures and, and things like that. So that's what they're expecting from us. Everybody wants a, a bear interaction to be black and white. I see a bear, I do this. You know, they'll say if it's a, <laughs> what do they even say? If it's a brown bear, play dead. If it's a black bear, fight back. And really that's just giving people this weird sense of something to do, but Really what you're trying to figure out is what are those bears' intentions? Is that a bear that just wants to be out of this situation as badly as you do? Well then just give it room. Giving a bear space is always a good solution. Just don't run. <laughs> just don't run to do that. So for decades now, small groups of well-behaved humans have come to these areas and watched the bears. And the bears have learned to just go about their business. And bears only live to about 30 at the oldest. So these bears have all grown up around people. Here's Brad Josephs. He's another brown bear guide. So right now you have generations of bears that have grown up with, my mom taught me that that's the ocean and this is what the tides do. The salmon come into these rivers this time of year. The big males are dangerous. Wolves can be dangerous to young bears. And in certain places there are these groups of people that stay together, and then they just go sit quietly, and they won't bother you, and you shouldn't go bother them, and so they just forget about you. That all sounds really dope, um, if everything goes perfect. It also seems super sketchy to me. Like, it would not take that much for things to go south real quick and get really bad. Yeah, I get that. But in almost 50 years of bear viewing in this area, 
there has never been an incident on a guided trip. <laughs> that that sounds qualified. Uh, you said on a guided trip, so that means that there have been incidents on non-guided trips, is what you're saying. That's not super encouraging, Jen. The only incident anyone I talked to could come up with happened in 2003 in Katmai National Park. Timothy Treadwell, a.k.a. Grizzly Man, and his girlfriend were killed by a bear. And I don't mean to downplay that incident, but from everything I've gathered, all of the basic things that I listed that people have to do to safely watch bears, Timothy ignored all of that. It turns into a bit of Monday morning quarterbacking. Like you say, oh, well should have done this, should have now, you know. <laughs> Alaskans love to to nitpick wilderness disasters. But, you know, he was out there for a lot of summers. And in a lot of ways, he was going out of his way to do everything wrong. Trying to touch bears, trying to force proximity on bears, like saying, hey, I'm going to come be close to you. Setting up camp in poor spots, not extracting himself from situations that any other reasonable human being probably would have been long gone or actively seeking out situations that were tense or had a rush to them. But you look at it and this is the hundred year anniversary of Katmai Park. Those are still the only two fatalities. It's in a lot of ways a testament to the tolerance of those animals in Katmai Park. If he was going that extreme for that long, it still took that long for something that bad to happen. The problem with this road corridor and the industrial complex in port is that all of a sudden, these bears will get exposed to people who behave very differently than the well-mannered groups of bear viewers they've gotten used to. They're going to be hazing bears. They're going to be chasing them out of facilities. The potential for food conditioning of a bear in a facility like that is very high. Suddenly a bear starts getting into dumpsters and then they say, oh, human food, and then they wander down into the McNeil River State Game Sanctuary, you start endangering the safety of the people who have been going to that spot for 50 years. They're creating a potentially dangerous situation between humans and bears in a place that it didn't exist before. A road corridor also means easier access for bear hunters. Some hunting is currently permitted, but at the moment, not very many hunts happen out there because you can only really access the area by plane or, I guess, by boat and some burly hiking. Jerry Jakes has run a remote lodge and guiding operation in the area for 40 years now. Here's Jerry. Now you've got opened a road right through a major migration pattern for these bears, which then can be hunted. Uh, and I, I don't personally want to see these bears here hunted. And I used to be a hunting guide. For years, I made a good portion of my living from guiding hunts, but the bears have just gotten under my skin and I've fallen in love with these bears and I just don't like seeing them die anymore. In essence, this delicate relationship that has developed between bears and humans over the past five decades could deteriorate almost overnight. When I hear all this, Jen, when you tell me all this, I, I mean, I instantly see this as a landscape that is very spectacular and precious, and, and I care. But I also understand that when you're you're trying to build a coalition with a diverse set of people that have different political leanings, you sometimes have to ask is like, why should 
people care about these bears. No, I get what you're saying. Um, there are a few reasons. First, well, brown bear viewing maybe seems like this fringe activity. It has actually become a significant part of the economy in Homer and a sustainable part. More important, though, if you protect the bears, if you protect the apex predator in an ecosystem, you protect the entire ecosystem by default. Here's bear guide Brad Josephs again. If you want to keep those bears alive and healthy, then you have to have the whole ecosystem healthy. If you manage for that species of bear, everything in the whole ecosystem is going to be okay. All the way down to every bird species, every flower species, because you have to manage for a giant area and worry about all the watersheds. I mean, you need to have a vast, intact stretch of wilderness. Okay. So, the ore has made it down the road, disrupted the bears and the bear viewing industry. I don't think I mentioned that the road would also cross approximately 170 streams, many of which are salmon streams, and would also likely disturb some moose and caribou. Then we get to the port and industrial complex. There's more, huh? Oh yeah, there's more. This industrial complex they want to put in is kind of a massive ordeal. A power-generating facility that produces enough power to run the city of Anchorage and a natural gas pipeline that runs underwater across Cook Inlet, in addition to the port itself. All this development would take place on a Moctadori beach near the mouth of a Moctadori Creek, a place where, for thousands of years, Native Americans had a seasonal fish camp during April and May. And where there is salmon, there are brown bears. So this part of the project would disrupt the bears as well. But a Moctadori makes for a peculiar port site for a number of other reasons. Shannon McBride Marin spent summers as a kid and young adult in the 70s, 80s, and 90s near Amoctadori, where her family ran a bear viewing operation. Here's Shannon. Amoctadori Beach is just this amazing, big, long catcher beach. And it's a huge, long curve, like a big moon-shaped curve. And on that beach, whales have washed up. And we've watched brown bears feeding on whale carcasses out there. I've found dozens of glass Japanese balls, the little tiny ones, and then the big huge ones that have the hemp net around them that are really old, that washed up from Japan with the Japanese current. And I've found notes and bottles out there. Amakitori Beach is just this beautiful, wild, windswept, super remote, amazing place. And it is completely out of line to consider putting a big development in there because that is super treacherous country. That area where Mokhtadori Beach is, is in Kamishak Bay. And you ask any commercial fisherman here in this part of South Central Alaska, Kamishak Bay is known for like wild weather and huge storms. I know that it gusts 120 out there. And I know that they have 25 foot seas. And it can be huge, crazy weather even in the summer. So who the hell thought it was a good idea to have something there year round? A big part of the reason for the wicked weather is that Amakdadori, actually the entirety of the transportation corridor, sits smack in the middle of a weather funnel, a low passage through the mountains called the Kamishak Gap, where pressure differentials between Bristol Bay and Cook Inlet equalize. By extension, it also functions as a barometric pressure equalizer between the Bering Sea and the Gulf of Alaska. Here's Shannon's father, Michael McBride. From our living room at our camp for 20 years, we could look right at Amoctadori Beach and see the savageness of that place exposed as it is to the open ocean. 
it's very, very mm, savage is the only word I can use in terms of the severity of the weather there. The winds that move back and forth through that narrow lower pass or venturi have to be seen to believed. The area is treeless simply because the wind is so aggressive that the snow blowing across the surface of the land actually scours the bark right off the trees. We're talking about hemispheric forces, namely the Gulf of Alaska on one side, the Bering Sea on the other, and the only low pass between enormous mountain ranges. You certainly can't use that as a place to reliably move large vessels back and forth. Oh, and the whole area? It sits along the Pacific Ring of Fire, a 25,000-mile horseshoe around the Pacific Ocean that's home to 90% of the world's earthquakes and 75% of volcanoes, including Mount Augustine, that striking cone just a few miles off the beach. We're talking about a volcano that, if you flew over it right now, there's a big plume of smoke coming out of it. It smokes almost constantly. Okay, so I understand how transferring the ore that many times could get expensive and that conditions on the lake and the bay sound um, challenging. And while, while all of that sounds like a genuine struggle for the pebble folks, it doesn't necessarily seem like a problem to anyone else. Am I missing something? Yes and no. No, in that lots of handoffs and challenging navigational conditions won't affect anyone else if everything goes right. And Pebble is adamant that before they transport the ore, they're going to get it damp so that dust doesn't get into the air. And then the ore will go into a sealed container where it will stay for the entirety of its journey until it gets to the final ship. The concern is that those five handoffs, the ice, wind, currents, waves, volcanoes, and earthquakes, they make for a lot of opportunities for something to go wrong. If something spills or leaks in transit could leach into the Cook Inlet watershed and ultimately threaten the marine life, the fish, and the fishermen in Cook Inlet, not just Bristol Bay. But even if this mine does get permitted and manages to operate safely in the short term, when you talk to people for long enough, the real concern is the potential long-term effects Pebble could have. Here's Bob Schaeflison, the executive director of a nonprofit called Cook Inlet Keeper. The pebble deposit is a low-grade deposit. There's a lot of mineralization there, but it's so diluted, it's so dispersed that you have to dig a gigantic hole to make this thing financially viable. Well, they're very sensitive to that, and so they've come out in their public relations and said, well, we're going to have a smaller footprint now. Well, to have a smaller footprint, you're going to have less resources, less money, and this transportation option they've selected here requires them to touch the material so many times there's no way that they have a viable business plan. It's just too expensive. Is the real concern right now that they're trying to minimize their footprint in order to get this project off the ground and then their goal is to expand that? Absolutely. It's all bait and switch. Then once they get the permits in place, we would see applications for expansion of the mine site. That happens all the time. It's a standard corporate practice. To illustrate his point, Bob showed me a map of all the mining claims in the Bristol Bay area. And as you can see, the pebble deposit is in these yellow areas, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) they're dwarfed and surrounded by all these other leases here. And so, again, it's kind of the camel's nose under the tent. Once you get the infrastructure in there, you would see the expansion of large hard rock mining activities throughout this entire area. And maybe the biggest problem 
is that the risks, they don't go away once the mine stops operating. Here's bear guide Jerry Jakes again. The project itself is troublesome, but the real problem is going to be the tailings pile. They need to build roughly six miles of 400-foot-tall earthen dam in an active earthquake zone. And then they're going to have to find a way to keep the water from leaching through the tailings or flooding through the tailings or the dam releasing for hundreds of years. The problem is, if water leaches into the tailings pile, it will come out contaminated with copper sulfate and sulfuric acid. And either of those are highly fatal to any aquatic life. So I'm terrified of what the long term is. I think they would maintain the mine and do a good job for the short term, but it's the generations to come that could forever be affected by a disaster, my grandkids' generation. I think it will certainly be the biggest ecological disaster if it goes through in the millennium. So Jen, everything you've told me so far, it's it's all about why this mine is a bad idea. And it frankly does seem like a bad idea. What's the response from the people who support this project? Did you talk to any of them? So for what it's worth, I failed to track down anyone in Homer in support of the mine who wanted to talk to me about it. I did record phone conversations with a few people in Anchorage who support Pebble, although they frame it a little different than that. Deantha Crockett is the executive director of the Alaska Miners Association. Here's Deantha. We are not blanket supportive of the mine versus we are blanket supportive of the ability for that mine to go through the permitting process and be thoroughly evaluated by scientific experts. Here's Mike Heatwall, the vice president of public affairs for the Pebble Partnership. We fully understand the criticality of the salmon fishery in Bristol Bay from both a cultural and commercial perspective. Our project has to successfully coexist with those others. Otherwise, basically, it won't get permitted. We have a process to review projects. It's an important process, and that's where we ought to have the critical conversations about this because the the opposite of a process that everybody agrees to is subject to the political whims of the day. And I don't think that helps anyone because it might be nice when your group is in charge and it will be terrible when the other group is in charge, no matter where you land on the political and philosophical aisle. As far as the transportation corridor, they figure that anything they proposed would have met opposition. I can promise you no matter which port area we selected, somebody was going to have words to say about it. There's a group who are very opposed to this project and nothing we can do will sway them. That's the same that goes for development in Anwar and cutting trees in the Tongass. Mike also disputes the idea that Pebble would be capable of poisoning Bristol Bay. There's a notion that one mine is somehow going to compromise the entire Bristol Bay watershed. We're talking about a 40,000 square mile watershed. And what Pebble is proposing is the equivalent of building a large airport facility, say within the state of Ohio, which is equal in size, roughly. Ohio is about 42,000 square miles. But the most compelling argument, to me at least, was about the infinite ways we create a demand for these materials. Copper is the main mineral we're looking at at Pebble. 
And I would argue that without copper, you would not enjoy your daily life very much. It provides you with electricity, makes your car work, has antimicrobial properties that protect you when you go to the hospital. I think more importantly, as we talk as a society about wanting to transition to green energy, wind turbines are dependent upon copper, so are solar panels and so are electric cars. There's three times the amount of copper in an electric vehicle required than the, the standard U.S. automobile out on the streets today. And so all of our decisions drive the demand for the minerals that the miners can go after. Here's Karen Mathias, the executive director of the Council of Alaska Producers. Those of us who live in cities, it's really easy to just flip on the light switch and get into the car, turn on the smartphone. And we don't, I think, spend very much time thinking about where things come from. But every time we use it, it's a vote for mining because you're buying a product or using a product that uses these minerals. I understand these people are smart. They profiled me and my audience correctly and brought up examples like wind turbines, electric cars, smartphones. I understand that these minerals also turn into other goods. Copper is used for decoration, for coins, for gunmetals. More than 75% of gold consumed each year winds up in jewelry. I realize there's no way for me to know where the minerals from the pebble deposit would ultimately end up. I suspect the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle of Priuses and gold watches. But they do have a point about the demand we create for these mines that we fight so hard against. Here's Deantha Crockett again. We know that the dependency of minerals is going absolutely nowhere. You've got a recorder right now. I'm on my iPhone right now. None of us are going to stop using minerals anytime soon. And that is the cold, hard truth. We know that mining is going to happen somewhere to give us those minerals. And I think that mining in the United States and particularly in Alaska, where we do it right, is somewhere that we should be pursuing mining to happen versus other jurisdictions of the world that have major environmental issues, human rights issues, you name it. I did press them and asked about whether they thought that some places might just have too much at stake to risk putting in a mine, if some places were just too special. And they had a good answer. Essentially, if we can't mine somewhere safely, we shouldn't mine there. Period. I think any place is special and deserves to be treated to the highest standards. It's not as if there are some places where it doesn't matter. The Pebble Partnership submitted their permit application to the Army Corps of Engineers in December 2017, which initiated a multi-year environmental review process. The short public comment period closed last summer. On January 16th, the Army Corps of Engineers will release a draft EIS and conduct meetings and hearings for no more than 90 days. They plan to come up with a final document by the end of 2019. Barring anything unexpected, Pebble will have their official stamp from the Army Corps of Engineers in early 2020. If this process seems unusually fast, it's because it is. The project has been fast-tracked, and it's moving through this permitting process at an unprecedented rate of speed, two or three times faster than the EIS process for a non-controversial application. After the EIS, Pebble will have to apply for a whole slew of smaller permits. But this is the granddaddy of permits. If they're granted this one, it'll be a real surprise if this project does not get approved. That said... Over the past seven years, the Pebble Partnership has seen its four major investors deem the project too controversial or too risky and walk away, even if it meant leaving money on the table. Even if the project does get permitted, 
Pebble still needs to find another investor to foot part of the bill. So we've got these two sub-adult brown bears that are full-on play bout in front of us. They're standing on hind legs. They're chewing each other's ears. Just kind of roughhousing in general. Uh, it's, it's set in a backdrop. We've just got tundra and mountains behind it as far as we can see. They're nicely backlit, so they have this kind of golden halo glow around them. I don't know how many bears we saw in those few hours we spent on the ground in the Katmai Preserve. From one spot, we could see 14. We watched flocks of gulls pick at the salmon carcasses the bears left strewn along the banks of the creek. We watched two adolescent male bears play fight like wildly oversized cats, rolling on their backs, batting at each other with massive paws. We watched two tiny cubs follow their mom across the creek, flailing with all they had against the pull of the current. Then watched the family clamor up the hillside behind us, the cubs pausing intermittently to bob their heads up and stare down at us with wide-eyed curiosity, then sprint back to catch up with their indifferent mother. We watched an older female bear walk within 20 feet of where we sat on the bank of the creek. Drew? That bear is really close to us, I said. Does that concern you? He told me no, his face still bright with that same warm, joyful smile. Then the bear planted herself in the creek just in front of us, snagged a salmon from the water, turned her back to the group, and began to eat. It may not make for great photos, Drew told us, but that's the biggest compliment that that bear could give us. Over those few hours, I also watched the rest of my group transform. Stoic and silent folks gradually forgot to meter their glee. A teenager told me it was the last stop of her family's Alaska road trip. The bears were the definite highlight. There's no real way to know whether Pebble Mine could adhere to its promises. Hire locals, boost the regional economy, do so without detrimental effect to the environment, and manage the tailings in perpetuity. There's no real way to know whether or not the established review and permitting process would successfully identify and address all of the concerns about the project. We can make educated guesses, but none of us can predict the future with complete certainty. What is clear is that a huge number of people hold this place dear, even if their reasons differ. For some people, it's the fish. For some, it's the bears, or the marine life in the bay, or the cultural history, or simply that they see the value of this wild place in a world where true wilderness is becoming increasingly rare. Karen Mathias is right. There isn't anywhere in Alaska that isn't special, that doesn't deserve to be treated with care. But on a single Friday, Drew convinced six more of us that this is a special place in a state of special places. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that that is one of the most amazing spots in a state full of amazing spots. It goes right to the top of the heap. So it's not like they picked just some spot in Alaska. They picked the spot. And when it first came out, this latest proposal, I had a physical reaction to it. I felt like I got punched in the stomach. Like it was, it knocked the wind out of me for a couple seconds. And you know, I got on the phone and I called Dave Backrack and I called Dave Applin and, and all these people to just say, hey, what can we do? 
And to a person, everybody has said, we'll do whatever it takes. If you want to stay up to date or learn more about the Pebble Project, check out pebblewatch.com or helpmcneilriver.org. You can sign up to receive updates and calls to action at savebristolbay.org. We'll put all those sites up on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. The Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia. Does your jacket need some TLC? A small tear in your favorite pants have you bumming? If it's broken, fix it with help of Patagonia's Warnware team. This winter, you can find Delia, the biodiesel repair wagon, at stops across the U.S. and Canada for free clothing repairs, do-it-yourself repair tips, and used Patagonia clothing. Warnware. Repair, trade, or buy it used. Additional support also comes from Kuat Racks. Hey guys, the holidays are near us, and it's also mud season, so don't shove your dirty mountain bike near the back of your car. Give your bike some love. Go to kuatracks.com and choose from their lineup of sturdy, easy-to-use, good-looking hitch racks and roof racks. Kuat, because you love your bike. And support comes from Voss and Brewing, who have something on tap just about every night of the week at their Richmond Brewery. From Tabletop Tuesday to yoga and live music, they've got you covered. Check them out. Follow Vossen on Instagram or Facebook. We have a lot of people to thanks for this episode. A lot of work went into it. Huge thanks to Dave Backrack of AK Adventures and Wes Head of Beluga Air for getting Jen and Drew out to see the Bears. Rachel James of Salmon State, thanks for all the help fact-checking. Dave Applin of World Wildlife Fund, Bob Shavelson of Cook Inlet Keeper, Shannon McBride Morin, and Michael and Diane McBride of Kachemek Bay Wilderness Lodge, Jerry Jakes of Alaska Grizzly Safaris, Bristol Bay Fisherman Katie Birch, Cook Inlet Fisherman Katie Pittsman, Brennan Wells, Brad Josephs, Derek Stonerev, Deanna Crockett of Alaska Miner Association, Catherine Mathias of the Council of Alaska Producers, Mike Hetwall of the Pebble Partnership, and Rebecca Logan of Alaska Support Industry Alliance. There's a lot of people, a lot of work going into this one. Most importantly, thank you to Drew for sharing his story, for all his hospitality, and for all his help on this episode. Music today from the F'd Up Beat, Kai Angle, Jason Tyler Burton, Sergey Karamanisov, Little Glass Men, Havelina Alemi, Andy G. Kohei, The IMG, and Fog Lake. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Jen Altschel, Becca Call, and me, Fitzcahal. You have been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>